Good morning, and welcome to episode 602 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo, I just uh, declared uh, a game was my favorite regular season game ever. Do you have a favorite regular season game ever? Hmm. Off the top of my head, no. I could probably come up with one. What's yours? Uh, the Giants home opener in 1993, uh, because like three months earlier, uh, we were convinced they were moving. They had been sold, and they were moving. And Have I ever talked about that? Have I ever talked about me uh, being at the game the day that they announced they were moving, and uh, the local TV news crew was there interviewing people? Doesn't sound familiar. And so I was 12 years old, and I really like wanted to be on TV. So I just started, <laughs> like, wherever she would go in the stadium, I would kind of get within earshot and just start yelling, put me on TV while she was interviewing people. And she finally interviewed me, and, you know, obviously just to get me to shut, you know, to, to shut up. But uh, then she used my clip. <laughs> it's, and, it's ironic and, that you really wanted to be on TV at age 12. Me and Brandon... Uh, it is ironic, but nobody knows why uh, you said that. Uh, me and like uh, Brandon Crawford, I think. I think Brandon Crawford was was on one of those too. I think he was like crying on on some news broadcast because. Do you they, remember what you said? Uh oh uh, no, I honestly I don't. Well, if anyone has footage of twelve year old Sam Miller on TV talking about the Giants, let anyway, us know. Yeah, anyway, the very existence of that home game was it felt like a miracle. It felt like uh, they had saved baseball. And uh, Bonds was playing his first game as a Giant, and and as I recall, I think he hit like a like a home run in the first or the second, and uh, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I can. I mean, I could probably come up with some pretty good games, but as a kid who rooted for the Yankees, there usually wasn't wasn't a whole lot of suspense or stakes in most regular season games. I I don't know, maybe the. The regular season game that I remember very clearly is Mike Messina's almost perfect game that Carl Everett broke up with one one strike away. That was a painful ending at the time because Messina was one of my favorite players and that was fun to watch. But that comes to mind. I don't. Can it just be the? It doesn't have to be a game that we were rooting for one way or another. Maybe no, I'll, no. Maybe I'll not. just pick the Dan Johnson game. Mm-hmm. The crazy, crazy end to the 2011 season, was it? Yeah, 2011 season, where everything came down to that last day, and the Red Sox game was going on at the same time, and there were pennant races being decided, and Dan Johnson hit another memorable home run. That was probably the most fun I've had on a regular season night. So the Giants game that I'm talking about, uh, we were driving home, um, from a vacation. And so we were in like a three or four hour drive. Um, and we were listening to it on the radio as we always would do. And it was me and my mom and my dad. And we, you know, we heard the beach boys sing the national anthem. Uh, sorry, the grateful dad sing the national anthem and bonds homered in his first at bat. And it was a great game. It went extra innings giants won. And, uh, at the end of it, my mom revealed that after six years of listening to baseball on every car trip we'd ever taken, that in fact, she hated it. <laughs> and I was just completely shocked as a narcissistic 13-year-old, uh, 12 or 13-year-old at the time. Uh, it would never have occurred to me that other people had 
uh, opinions that differed from mine. <laughs> and I was shocked. And so from then on, we had to, because uh, me and my dad are good guys, we would kind of uh, parcel out uh, the the, the uh, baseball segments in any car trip so that it was not nonstop. Mm-hmm. How long does a grateful dead national anthem take? <laughs> is, is there a jam in the middle? <laughs> Good job. Uh, it's still Matt Albers' birthday, his 32nd birthday in the time zone where you are right now. So mm-hmm. we should wish a happy birthday to Matt Albers. All right. So anything else before we dive into emails? Did you say play index? Uh, yeah, I think I, so. I, I jumped in pretty quick tonight. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure. All right. So let's start with a question from Francis in the Bronx. Now that Ben Zobrist has fulfilled his destiny and become an athletic, what player would you move to a new team and why? Here are my three examples. A selfish one. As a Yankees fan, I'd make Mike Trout the club's latest famed center fielder. A funny one. I'd stick Joey Votto on the Royals to watch people freak out as the team tried to get him to cut down on his walks and homers in the name of turning him into a singles-hitting run producer. And a purist one, I'd put DJ LeMahieu on the Braves to see him make sweet baseball music with Andrelton Simmons. I'm sure you guys can come up with some better ones. Nope. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, wouldn't be sure. Yeah, there aren't really that many possibilities for this, because even he named three, and two of them... I can't even really co-sign. Like the the selfish one is just a selfish one. Every everyone wants the best player in baseball on their team. That's not a not a fun one particularly. And the Vado Royals one, people have been freaking out about those things well with Vado on the Reds, so I don't know how much that would really change if he were on the Royals suddenly. So how many situations are there where our appreciation of a player could realistically be altered by the team that the player is on i guess he has named one of them a double play combination that is a good one if you think that a particular shortstop and second baseman would work well together and make a lot of web gems if they played side by side that would be a good one if you maybe if you think that a player is under appreciated on one team and if he could get away from that team he would blossom and get a ton of playing time or there could be some sort of park effect where you think that a player's most entertaining quality would be enhanced by a particular park. Mine would probably be Giancarlo Stanton to Coors Field, which I've written about before. But I, You haven't. I've written about it. <laughs> well, you we, didn't write about it. I did write about it. No, I wrote about it. <laughs> when did you write about it? August 24th, 2012. It was headlined, The Rockies and Real Home Run Hitters. When, 2012? <laughs> August. I wrote about John Carlos Stanton. Uh, we must have both written about it that month, prompted by that Same crazy point. home run he hit. Yeah. Yeah, because I... It's funny because wrote... you and I were both editing each other at the time, and neither <laughs> one of us remembers. <laughs> yeah. Well, every almost every time Stanton goes to Coors Field, he seems to hit just a, an extreme home run. And he hits some pretty crazy home runs, as it is, no matter what park. But... The best thing about Stanton is that he hits really, really long home runs. And if he were in course field all the time, he'd hit even more really long home runs. So that would be fun. Yeah, it would be. But it it actually wouldn't be that fun anymore. I think that the um, the strength of the era has conquered the strength of course field. And 
So even if you put Stanton there, you know, he'd hit 55 home runs. It'd be like, uh, you know, it'd be fun. But yeah. we've seen guys hit 55 home runs. I mean, I want to see someone hit 85 home runs. I don't even and, know how many more he would hit than he already hits. I mean, he would hit more, but he... How- well, you could read the article I just sent you. Mm, okay. Which is explicitly <laughs> about that. <laughs> and how many did you conclude that he would gain? I didn't, I didn't for Stanton. Uh, yeah. But yeah, um, it seems like one of those guys who his home runs so often would clear the fence in any park. Although, of course, any anyone has boundary homers that would go out in some places and not in others. Of course, uh, uh, Clayton Kershaw playing for the uh, Cedar Rapids, whatever they are these days, Colonels, I think. Uh, we had a question about that one time. I would I would still like to see that. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's not really an option. I would say um, in... It's not that Stanton would hit more home runs. I don't really care if he hits more. It, it's that his longest home runs would be even longer. Yeah, but, who? you know, who cares? Like, it's, it's <laughs> just... a little bit. It's just, a, it's just math. You're not actually seeing any... They're not more impressive. I think they are. They're not. They're just in lighter air, Ben. You know how it works. <laughs> but visually, they go farther. They're majestic, I, more majestic. I, I find home runs to actually not be. I know uh, you do. We anyway. So we talked about this when we talked about our MLB TV must-watch players, and I named and I, Stanton, and you disparaged me, and then I the, promised immediately an after that I, he I hit promised, a fun home run. And I promised an article about it, and I haven't done it. I still, it's on my uh, tickler file, my tickler list. I, it's going to be good because uh, I do have a good angle on it. But um, my answer to this question. Uh, would be A-Rod to Seattle um, because I don't believe anybody in Seattle ever hated A-Rod while he was there. A-Rod in Seattle was non-controversial. He was likable. He was liked. He was Mike Trout, more or less. Um, You know, a little stiff, maybe uh, not quite, uh, you know, not quite, certainly not Jeter necessarily, but as far as I know, well-liked and a superstar. And uh, it was, you know, if you were making the biopic, it's clear that the decision to go to Texas was the moment that everything changed for A-Rod and the public. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think it would be a nice bookend to the A-Rod story if he went back to Seattle. And, uh, and uh, I assume that Seattleians probably hate him more than anybody because he left them for Texas mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if he, you know, had a good year and redeemed himself. And 29 cities would still hate him, but at least he would have this one little city where he was always happy. Yeah, like Barry Bonds has San Francisco. I guess, yeah, I guess that's a, a good solution to this question is some some homecoming. Although I don't know how fun the homecoming is beyond the initial reception. Like how fun was Ken Griffey Jr.'s well, homecoming? Griffey, <laughs> that was no, not it, very fun. He would have to be pretty good. Yeah, A-Rod would have to be pretty good for it to work. Yeah. How about Billy Hamilton on the Royals? I think I would like that. Billy Hamilton is, he plays for the Reds, and Great American Ballpark has one of the smallest outfields in baseball in terms of square footage. And Kaufman has the most, I believe. So if he went to Kaufman, which is a good place to hit triples and stuff, we would get to see Billy Hamilton run more. And they're also aggressive base dealing wise, so he would run in that way there as much as anywhere else. So the thing we like about Billy Hamilton is that he runs fast, and if he were on the Royals, he would run fast more often. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. This one is more like a comment. It comes from Kenny. 
He says, I remember a while back, Sam delved into who was the best player to never make an all-star team or receive MVP votes. And if I remember correctly, he settled on Nick Markakis as a clear number one. However, I'm struggling to remember if there were any other parameters for this title. The other day, I read that A.J. Burnett has never been an all-star, which came as a slight surprise to me, possibly due to his high profile as a multiple-time World Series winner and a former Yankee. In addition to the All-Star Game snubs, further research indicates that not only has he never received any MVP votes, he has never received any Cy Young votes either. Therefore, barring any other parameters I might be forgetting, I would like to nominate A.J. Burnett and his 38.5 and counting Fangraphs War as the best player to never make an All-Star Game or receive any major award votes. Side note, in case only position players are eligible for this imaginary yet awesome title, David DeJesus is sitting at 24.7 F-War, which is a rounding error more than Marcakis. Please let me know if I'm onto something here for if I'm totally forgetting a major part of the exercise. Well, we didn't talk about pitchers, and um, I think it's a lot easier for a pitcher to make this list, um, I would think, because uh, Cy Young ballots are much, uh, are much shorter, and pitchers have a, an uphill climb to get an MVP vote, especially when Cy Young ballots are only three deep. I mean, you could go... I, I don't have a great example off the top of my head, but like uh, this is not a good example because he got one. But like Mark Burley, for instance, has like almost 60 war on baseball reference and has has appeared on, I think, one ballot as a third place vote in his career, something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's harder for a pitcher to qualify. So I think that they it wouldn't be fair to compare pitchers and hitters in this category. Uh, but Burnett is a, a fine candidate for the pitcher half of it. I don't have a better one off the top of my head. And the other thing about pitchers, by the way, is that um, there was only one pitcher on the ballot until, you know, some year, like 1970 or something. And there wasn't even a Cy Young before, like, 1955 or whatever. I'm just making up dates, but roughly. And so you don't have the historical advantage that, uh, like, MVP offers where it goes back to 1930. Um, and, um, and again, pitchers just don't get MVP votes at the same rate. Um, as to De Jesus, uh, my issue with De Jesus is that he was never really good enough to qualify for either one. He was, a mm -hmm. he is a compiler in this regard. I think his best year was like a, maybe a four or five win year, which could get you down ballot votes. But as I wrote earlier this year with Utley, uh, is certainly no guarantee of it and uh, could get you an all-star appearance, but also not a guarantee, especially if you don't have a great first half. So, I think the reason that we noticed Marcakis, and I think the reason somebody else noticed Brett Gardner later on is that each of them had like a seven or eight win season where you're like, geez, just that is shocking. How do they not get recognized in any way for that one season? And then the strength of the career just kind of adds to it. The Jesus is in a different category altogether. And mm -hmm. maybe there needs to be a third category. The best player who never got an MVP vote appeared in an all-star game or deserved either. <laughs> yeah okay we should probably make that one of the conditions all right uh let's do this one from robert he is referring to our podcast yesterday if the nationals were to heed sam's advice and trade steven strasburg wouldn't that shed a different light not in a good way on their decision to hold him out of the postseason a couple of years ago surely looking back they'd wish they'd not chosen to save his arm no Sure, they can defend the decision in regard to his health in the immediate years following, but at the time they made it sound as if they were sacrificing one postseason for a career. 
given the landscape now in which even rich teams are willing to billy bean their rosters and trade stars a year or two before threat contracts expire and or their contracts expire and no one is ultimately untouchable perhaps we won't see another team hold out a young star again what do you think do you think that jeez uh, i don't know i mean you certain well for one thing if your plan is to cash out strasburg um you know, two years later, you've got to get him to two years later. And if he gets hurt between then and two years, uh, he's worth nothing to you. And you maybe could convincingly argue that it's not like teams have these injuries so well calibrated. I mean, they have them completely uncalibrated. They have they don't even know if the innings and the pitch counts would have hurt him, uh, let alone when it would hurt him and at what pace it would hurt him. Um, so it's a very difficult thing to estimate. And uh, presumably, if it ever became more easy to estimate, if we had greater precision in what this was doing to a guy's arm, uh, it might hurt his trade value. Probably wouldn't if he'd made it two years healthy, but, you know, it might somewhat. Uh, And you don't know you're going to do it. You don't know that you're going to want to trade him at that point. And Mm -hmm. it's a a very hard thing to plan. Um, But I guess maybe a better question, a simpler question, is simply this. Do the A's hold Strasburg out of that situation, knowing that they are almost certainly going to trade him before he gets to free agency? Do you think that the A's and the Nationals, uh, ignoring all the other aspects of the team that separate them, um, but I think the fact that one had Strasburg and one didn't, yeah, and uh, I mean obviously that, but <laughs> yes. uh, ignoring all those, would the A's, knowing that uh, knowing that they were going to trade him, almost certainly at year three, four, or maybe five? Probably not even that. Would the A's have held him out? I doubt it. I don't think most teams would have. Even even most teams in the Nationals situation. Um, well, Ben, I have an article topic for you. Oh, yeah? Well, the A's know that almost nobody on their team is going to be there in three or four years. Um, right. And so is there any evidence that the A's uh, have taken any particular stances preserve their pitcher's health. Uh, like I, I don't know if this is an evidence, but I'm just spitballing here. Uh, Sonny Gray, of course, was pitching uh, well into, uh, he pitched, uh, you know, well into October. And that was like, what, the year after he got drafted? So mm. that was his first full season in the pros, I think, maybe. Although he also wasn't that young um, at the time. No, I'm wrong. I'm off by a year on Sonny Gray, aren't I? Um, anyway, the point is that Sonny Gray, nobody... I mean, when's, have you ever heard of the A's shutting a pitcher down or doing anything of the sort? Uh, I'm guessing that fatigue is fatigue, and the, all the things that would hurt you, uh, that would make you an injured pitcher, would also make you an, an, um, an, uh, an effective pitcher. And I also think that the A's are not necessarily governed by sociopaths. And <laughs> I think that probably the case is that you wouldn't find anything, but that seems like the sort of thing you'd look at. Do they, Are the A's looser with pitch counts? Are the A's looser with any of these things? Mm. knowing uh, that they don't have the same incentives as a team like, say, the Tigers or whoever you think is a team that is likely to keep its players for a long time. Uh-huh. Yeah, Gray was drafted in 2011, debuted in 2013. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I can't call to mind any obvious examples of the A's overworking people. They don't have that reputation, really. And they probably don't really want to be known as the team that overworks players because you know that they're disposable or that you're going to dispose of them soon. 
Not that it really matters if you're drafting the players. They don't really have a choice of where they're going. But if you do the same to people you trade for or or free agents, then that's probably not the greatest rep to have. Although maybe there are some players who just want to play a ton and aren't worried about the, the health ramifications and so would welcome that. I don't know. Worth looking into, sure. All right, one more Strasbourg tangentially related question from Troy on Tuesday's show about the prospect of trading Steven Strasburg. Sam said something I've heard a number of people say. Strasburg could be traded for any prospect. Taking a break from the debate over the wisdom of trading Strasburg, this has merged with a recent effectively wild question slash trope to form a new question in my head. Suppose for a moment that MLB introduced a golden ticket available for one team to buy that could be redeemed at any point for their choice of prospect from another team's system. At any point. So you could do it in five years. Yes. You do it in, it's, it's the endless it's the ticket. It's the timeless, timeless ticket and the golden ticket in one. Okay. The ticket would be awarded to the highest bidder, and they could use it in any year to effectively kidnap any player from any franchise who had not yet accrued Major League service time. How much do you think a team would be willing to pay for a golden prospect ticket and how much do you think it would actually be worth to a franchise? It's interesting because this is um, the in a lot of situations the timing of when you acquire a player is very important. If you have if you're if this were the opposite, if it were that you could acquire any player, so you could theoretically get you know Clayton Kershaw, um, uh, you know when you're tied for the division lead on July 31st, he would have more value to you than you know any other time you could think of maybe but with prospect you're probably not necessarily getting a guy who's going to be ready to step in the next day mm-hmm. and so you would do this when you're rebuilding i guess but not really because i don't think that rebuilding teams ha- i mean everybody would like to have prospects so probably timing almost doesn't even matter is yeah what it doesn't even have to be it doesn't have to be a guy who's far away from the majors often the the top prospect is the top prospect because he's not only promising and talented, but he's close to the majors, which means there's less of a chance that he will wash out before he gets there. So you could, I mean, often the number one prospect is a guy who contributes in that season, right? Or at least. Yeah, but you just times. can't. You're not going to count on an MVP type performance. No, is what, what I'm saying. You might get you might get a bust. You might get jerks and Profar. Yeah, and and doing nothing really for you for the first few months. And is it? Would you say it's safe to say that if a team had this ticket, they would not use it on any player currently in the minors? Uh, that that there is no prospect right now who rises to the level mm-hmm. of uber prospect that uh, you know Bryce Harper or uh, A Rod or I don't know who else you might say Justin Upton or something like that seemed to be at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't know if there's anyone on a prospect list right now who looks like a Hall of Famer in the making, as those guys you just named did, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. So the so the I mean the expected value for a number one prospect. Uh, I'm looking at a Neil Payne thing from 538, although this has been done in lots of places at lots of times. The expected value is. 17 wins or it it was early this or early last year over the the first period of team control so you could just multiply that by whatever you think the value of a win is to get the baseline for what teams would pay for this but 
it's more than that because you can control whether it is a an extraordinary number one prospect or just a pretty good number one prospect. There's a difference there, so you can wait, as you just said. You can. I mean, if your team is desperately in need of a shortstop, and the yeah, mm-hmm. guy happens to be a shortstop, he's worth more to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you can time it when you want. You can get the guy when you need him. When you you can pick the position that you want him at, so you get all this choice, and you can take him away from any other team. So right, which if it's I mean it's not quite zero sum, but if you could take the guy from your division rival, it's mm-hmm. almost double. Right. You know, yeah. If it's the right team, it's almost double. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So the the I, I guess the timelessness doesn't change the value that much. Like it's not like you're gonna buy this thing expecting. I mean, there's a realistic time when you can expect to use it right because what's the average life expectancy of a front office regime yeah uh, is it five years i don't i don't know something like that so they would other than yeah i think if it weren't right now i think almost every team would in this situation would use it almost immediately in almost any year of baseball's existence i don't think they would do it right now because right now we have a particularly odd crop of top prospects i think mm-hmm. but any other year i think they would just use it immediately like, I think maybe they would have used it, like, last year, I think Buxton would have been worth using your golden ticket. Mm-hmm. And maybe next year he will be. It's just, like, right now at this particular moment, there are question marks even about the number one guy. Okay, so would a team pay, is it crazy to say $200 million? I wouldn't have gone that high. But maybe it's not. I'm trying to remember what uh, KG did that thing, right? Uh, on what Harper or Trout would be as a free agent. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think so. Someone uh, that. Yeah, it was. Let's see. I think it might have been. Here it is. Oh, I inspired it. Oh, really? (laughs) Second paragraph. My good friend Sam Miller of the Orange County Register asked an interesting question via Twitter that has been bouncing around in my head for some time now. Uh How about that? Not planned. (laughs) And Uh, what was the conclusion? So this was February 2012. So this was before Trout's big year. So the results. Average offer for Bryce Harper, who was a free agent, eight years, $113 million. Best offer, eight years, $150 million. Trout was 120 was the best, and 102 was the average. Moore, Matt Moore, was 83 was the average, 144 was the best offer. I think that it's fair to say that those probably, you would, you would assume those would be a little bit lower than reality. Cause, yes. Because um, I think that these, even in an anonymous poll, tr- stressing the t- terms of the question, I still think people are going to be thinking, like they're, they're going to go low because they've never done this. It's out of their their wheelhouse if they actually had to price it i bet they'd go a little higher and that was a few years ago so prices go up a little bit and this is timeless so we're factoring in some further inflation and on the other hand on the other hand there maybe haven't been three prospects in history that were more hyped than bryce harper right yeah so all right well i'm, I'm so you think you're still know that anyone million? Two hundred million still still sits well with you. Seems right. Seems I fair. I don't know that anyone would pay that. It seems like a difficult thing to 
swallow or to persuade an owner to do. And it doesn't actually, well, see, these also, though, those cover their salaries. And this golden ticket wouldn't cover the player's salary. So by year three, you're paying him money anyway. True. By year six, you're paying him what he's worth. So this this is theoretically the golden ticket would only capture surplus value. That like when you talked about the Neil Payne piece, that was surf, surplus value. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, I, that's right. So so I lower. Would, I would have a hard time going over. Like I would have a hard time seeing anything over maybe a hundred and ten, and even that seems kind of extreme to me. Yeah, I think I would. I would go a little over that for the red guy. Okay. Okay, play index. Uh, so Jeff Bannister, mm-hmm. uh, who I believe I, I, I think I read his name the other day in one of your Grantland pieces. Yeah. Uh, the Rangers manager, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh's former bench coach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you know anything about Jeff Bannister's playing career? Nope. Jeff Bannister's playing career was one plate appearance. Um, and, uh, I feel like, uh, I feel like the world seems more full of these guys than it really is because every one of these guys, if in any reference to him, the writer is going to make sure that he notes he only got one plate appearance. So Mm -hmm. it feels like you're just constantly running into these guys in articles. (laughs) Except me in my article. (laughs) You didn't mention it. That's right. Uh, but in fact, there uh, you know there haven't been that many. There's been like 150 or something like that. But that's still, I guess, that's still a lot. Um, so I started wondering though about how these guys had done, and so I looked up every player in history who had one plate appearance. I actually started it in 1910 because well, it's complicated. But so since 1910, and there are 134 players who had one plate appearance. Pitchers are excluded from this. Only hitters. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, you want to guess the slash line? <laughs> uh, I'm having. Well, all right. I'm, there's so many errors in this sample, so I don't know. I'll say uh, two thirty, two eighty, three forty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far off. You are so far <laughs> off. It's uh, 130, 195, 162. Wow. So they have a 350 OPS. Uh, not one of the 134 ever hit a home run. Um, and in fact, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, that's all. That's all you need to know. Not one hit a home run. They were terrible. They were horrible. Uh, but so what I wanted to know, though, is then did these guys uh, who only got one plate appearance, did they only get one plate appearance because they made one out and their manager overreacted or put too much emphasis on that. And so therefore they never got another chance. Like, is there, should they have gotten two basically? I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously they shouldn't have had a full career. They would have earned a full career if they, if they deserved one, but should they have at least gotten two or 10 or 20 or whatever, if they had gotten a hit, would they have, would they have gone further? Because so so these guys hit worse than the average pitcher hit over that spin then, right? Uh, pro- probably, yeah. yeah. Pitchers used to have like yeah. 400 over Yeah. Uh, probably. I don't know. Uh, so then I looked at two plate appearances. Do you think it goes up much? <laughs> just, just curious. Do you think it goes up much? Uh, how big is this sample? Also? Uh, good question. It is uh ninety eight players 
and so therefore 196 plate appearances. Mm. Uh, I would guess no. Uh, it doesn't go up much. You're right. It goes up 22 points of batting average. It goes up 14 points of on-base percentage, and it goes up 33 points of slugging, although still no home run. No player who hit a home run was drummed out of the league after one or two plate appearances. Hmm. Uh, so hitting a home run does seem to buy you a third, at the very least. So when you get to three, there are guys with home runs? When you get to three, there are two home runs in the group of 80. No, there's one home run, sorry, in the group hmm. of 82 players. Um, and they actually drop down. They're lower than the two plate appearance guys. Of course, this is because of sample issues, yeah. right? Who's the um, one guy who hit a home run and didn't get a fourth play appearance? Luke Stewart, 1921. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and so these guys drop <laughs> 17. <laughs> no wonder Luke Stewart didn't get a fourth play appearance. Just look yeah. at his look uh, at his baseball reference player photo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he is a, he is actually. He, he is a connect the dots of a campground. He's, he's a Rorschach test. <laughs> Everyone go look at Luke Stewart's baseball reference page. <laughs> i got to send this to Jeff. Yeah, Jeff needs to do an article on this guy. I got it, I got it. You don't have to send it to Jeff this second. But we, I are, we are recording a podcast. All right. So <laughs> okay. the uh, the three plate appearance guys drop 17 points of batting average. They're actually lower in batting average and on base percentage than the one plate appearance guys. But thanks to that one home run, they have a little bit of a boost in slugging percentage. And so this is I, I was wondering uh, basically what I wanted to see was some sort like what you should see if you had a sample that was big enough is that you would see the tiniest, tiniest bump upward, right? They Like, every plate appearance would go up, but very, very small. And if you saw a big gap, then you would you would conclude that there's uh, that baseball teams were over, uh, overreacting to single plate appearances or maybe three plate appearances. But you don't actually see that. Uh, it is as it should have been. The climb seems to be fairly slow, very, fairly steady. Guys with four plate appearances hit 145, 203, 190. So they're still garbage. They still don't belong in the league. And they're just basically as bad as the one plate appearance guys, but slightly better. Ten plate appearances finally gets you a little breathing room. You're up to beyond pitcher levels here, 176, 257, 231. 25 plate appearances, actually lower than the 10, 10 plate appearances. So that's kind of interesting. That, uh, But once you get up to 50, you're talking about Utility and field types, 271 on base, 296 slugger. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, by 100 plate appearances, you're talking about almost major leaguers, 284 on base, 301 slug. So the system more or less works. I didn't find uh, anybody behaving notably irrationally or any particular patterns uh, that were that interesting except for the pattern of these one plate appearance guys being really 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 bad and uh, so that makes you think that most of them were probably not uh, uh, they had one plate appearance and then got in a car crash on the way home they probably didn't deserve the one mm -hmm. I was just reading Luke Stewart's Sabre bio it's kind of surprising that he has a Sabre bio but I, I guess it makes sense in that his his home run was actually historic it was he was the first American leaguer to hit a home run in his first plate appearance so it came in his first plate appearance, and then he actually got the start 
the next day. And he went over two, and that was it. Pretty short leash. But the home run was off of Walter Johnson. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, Walter Johnson uh, used to, you know, that's suspect because, you know, Walter Johnson would sometimes lay one in. He'd you think he did that for Luke Stewart? I'm not sure if he did or not, but he would lay. <laughs> took pity on him because he looks like a Rorschach test. I think I think Walter <laughs> I think Walter Johnson did throw a uh, pipe shot or two hmm. in his life and was uh, all known as a very nice man. Hmm. Well, maybe. All right, that's a good one. That's one of my favorite play indexes. Uh, do your own play index segments at baseballreference.com. Remember to use the coupon code BP. When you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30. All right, let's wrap up with, uh, okay, this one's from Cody. Several times a year, though less frequently since the Phillies' wind cycle turned, there is a trader signing to which the unwashed masses are nearly unanimously opposed. Whether in terms of dollars or players given up, the cost is considered exorbitant. So he wants to know, could a GM float rumors of an impending deal to gauge public reaction? How bad would the public be at this? And is there any value in doing this? This game was uh, lost. Uh, Walter Johnson won this game 16 to 5. Hmm. And so you have to assume that his one plate appearance came late in a game that was a massive blowout. Yes, uh, I can. We can tell you that, or no, we don't have play don't by play that. for that. No. Mm. And so, uh, so, eh, you know. <laughs> okay. Well. I'd be interested to see if Walter Johnson, if you could find in in his record a greater than normal number of home runs that uh, made for nice stories. Mm. Okay. Well, you could you could probably do that with the play index. Uh. Yeah. All right, so Cody wants to know, could a GM leak a move that he is intending to make in order to gauge the reaction? Yeah. And I, should he? I saw, I've, yeah, that uh, I've had times where I've seen a reaction to a move be so loud mm-hmm. uh, that I wondered. Like, yeah, I, like I had sort of, I had sort of uh, cashed that move in as made. And then I start to feel that nervous tension that it's now it's not going to get made because mm-hmm. uh, everybody can see what's happening. Um, uh, you could probably do it. Uh, would you want to? Would you want to, Ben? Um, I mean, you've got. It's not as though. See, the thing about it is that if you have, assuming you trust the people around you at all to not be horrible sycophants or plotting to steal your job, um, it's not as though you have no other opinions in your life. You know, there's not necessarily a, a huge wisdom of crowds benefit here because if you wanted to, you've got 20 people in the office. You could ask those 20 people. And I think I remember from statistics class that 30 is enough to, to predict an election, presidential election. So you could probably get a pretty good sense of what the reaction is going to be before you do it. I mean, do you think that Tony Regan's uh, turned on his computer that night after Vernon Wells and was like, what? <laughs> I mean, he probably knew, right? He knew that they were, that, that he probably knew. He probably didn't care what those people thought. Yeah, I guess so. I've been kind of thinking of trying to come up with, like, the Internet's most disparaged moves and, like, a retrospective to see yeah. how often they actually turn out to be as bad as the Internet thought. Like, 
the Ryan Howard deal, yes, that turned out to be as bad as everyone thought, but the James Shield trade, James Shields trade maybe did not turn out to be as bad as everyone thought, or or the Vernon Wells trade did turn out to be. So I, I wonder, it's easier to recall the ones where the internet turned out to be right. But, yeah, especially, but, especially with Howard's case, because yeah. so much of the Howard, uh, so much of what I don't remember, I don't remember having an opinion about the Howard move at the time. I didn't, I wasn't in a point in my life where I had to have mm-hmm. opinions. So maybe that's the difference. Yeah. But yeah, it'd be fun. You had to figure out an objective way of determining what the internet's, I've thought about that too. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think about how do you measure the internet? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if, if there were a way for a GM to gauge the public's reaction without making the move public, then yes, that would be worth it. If you could somehow have a sample of people that was really large and also pretty informed and yet there was no downside to leaking, then sure, there I, I would bet that there would be some value in doing that, at least at least in avoiding the worst moves, maybe. I but, mean, what if it, if you're if you're really that uncertain about whether this move is good or not that you need to pull the internet, then it's conceivable that I mean, you probably think you're winning the move. So what if you do this and you think you're winning the move? And so by doing this, you're simply going to create an internet movement to mock the other guy, right? If if mm-hmm. you think that you're ripping off the other guy, so then maybe you worry about tipping him off. You you wouldn't. None of this is realistic. Right. It's not how adults necessarily behave. But um, I also think that there's some benefit to not being a team that is known for leaking yeah. uh, trade talks. You just don't want to be that team. Sure. And right. And then I don't know. You kind of if you want the move to happen, you probably don't want to introduce anything that could potentially complicate the move. So and you don't want to maybe give your you don't want to give your rivals the chance to outbid you and swoop in at the last second and and get the guy that you're going after, that sort of thing. So I would guess that those things would outweigh the value of doing this. If you could somehow do it secretly and to get the value, then then yes, I bet there would be value. But but giving away the the secret probably would wipe that out. All right. Is that enough? It's enough for me. Okay. All right. So we will be back later in the week. We have asked you already to subscribe to the Play Index and support the show. Please support the show in other ways by rating and reviewing it and subscribing to it on iTunes and joining the Facebook group and talking to other listeners about the news of the day at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Send us some emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and we will be back later in the week.